2: Strange Familiars. I'm your host, Timothy, and back tonight from her noted absence last week (laughs) is my lovely co-host, Allison. How are you doing, Allison?
3: Refreshed.
2: Refreshed from your your time away from Strange Familiars? (laughs) Yes. It's a very stressful (laughs) podcast.
3: It is. I had to go to New England to get away. What the heck
2: were you doing?
3: I was with my sister and we were going on a whirlwind tour of artistic sites in New England.
2: (laughs) (laughs) See, we have to clarify, Uh because every time you're not here, I think people assume I've killed you and buried you in the basement, because I get a lot of, where was Allison? Why wasn't Allison on the show this week?
3: Thanks, everybody. It's a pretty safe assumption. Oh, come on.
2: (laughs) Guess who I'm talking with tonight?
3: Is it one of our favorite guests?
2: Brother Richard is here. We're going to be talking about a podcast favorite, I'd say generally across podcasts, people love this topic and people have asked me to approach this topic before Mm
4: -hmm.
2: we will be talking about the biblical nephilim which some people have connected to bigfoot
3: they're big guys right
2: listen to the interview okay i'll say that okay i almost want to give a caveat that if you are really really into this theory that the nephilim are bigfoot you might not be getting what you want to hear out of this interview but i think you should listen anyway yeah, it's really, really interesting. And we talk about not just the Nephilim, but other hairy figures in the Bible. People often bring up Esau and some of these other characters as, you know, potential candidates for Bigfoot in the Bible. So We talk about all this stuff, what they were, what they probably weren't. Before we get to Brother Richard, I want to mention that we're doing a sort of part two to this show on the next patron show for August. Mm-hmm. It's going to be about giants.
3: Or people with giantism.
2: Little of both. Mm-hmm. A little bit of the uh, Giants of the Woods, a little bit of Giants of the Circus, and so forth. So it's kind of a adjunct show to this mm-hmm. one. That'll be for patrons. That'll be coming up soon. If you like Strange Familiars, if you like what we do, and you want to help support us and get more content besides, the best way is to become a patron. You go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. You sign up, you get over 70 patron shows right away as soon as you sign up. And then we're doing more every month. For now, we're doing two a month. Try to give our patrons as much extra content as we can. Again, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you don't like the idea of a subscription like Patreon and you just want to make a one-time donation, if you go to strangefamiliars.com, look under the show notes for any episode, you should see a paypal.me link. If you click on that, you can make a one-time donation. Of course, we appreciate any help you can give the podcast. And we want to thank our patrons who make this show possible. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much. All right, let's get into this long conversation I had with Brother Richard regarding the Nephilim. I'd like to welcome Brother Richard back to the show. How are you doing tonight, Brother Richard?
5: I'm good, thanks, Tim. It's good to be with you and with the Strange Familiar. I was going to say group. It, it's, it's, more, it's nearly family at this stage, but uh, it, it's good to be back with you.
2: We love having you on the show and happy to count you amongst the family. Absolutely. I'm also
5: very glad that the Irish contingent is being well represented these days.
2: Yes, it's, it's the Irish takeover of Strange Familiar. <laughs> you might regret that yet. <laughs> Well, tonight we're going to be talking about the Nephilim, which Mm. you approached me about this. And I have to say, people have been asking me to do a show on the Nephilim for a long time. And I've I've Mm. kind of avoided it because I just haven't been real comfortable with the information that was out there. I I think that's Mm. the kindest way I can put it.
5: Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I suppose it's something that that has intrigued me as I've I've sort of... um become more aware or more interested in the whole question of the, the kind of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, hom- hairy hominid, all, all of these kind of wild men figures. And Nephilim kept popping up in the background and in certain certain research directions, I'd say, a, a, along the way. And I suppose coming from certainly the Christian tradition, the monastic tradition, and having done a fair amount of, of scripture study along the way, um, I was kind of I suppose a little concerned, maybe, about some of the assumptions and some of the jumps that, that, that were made around it. So I suppose disclaimers out of the way for, us to, for for those who are firmly attached to Bigfoot is Nephilim. I don't think anything I'm going to say is going to necessarily um, change their minds on that. But I, I do think there are certain directions that people have taken uh, along the way with this that maybe um, some more information might be good to have.
2: Sounds good. Well, let's start out with the basics. So, who or what were the Nephilim?
5: Okay, so the Nephilim turn up in scripture, primarily in one particular passage in the uh, book of Genesis, uh, the first book of the the Hebrew Bible and um, the Christian Bible as well. That's that's Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 in the, the Christian notation. And again, we've kind of got to qualify all of this along the way because When we sit down with an English translation of the Bible today, regardless of of which translation it is, we are, you know, two to three languages away and a couple of thousand years away from the people who sat down to write this. So whether you're a believing Christian who believes scripture was directly inspired by God, or whether you're someone who's just examining it from an anthropological point of view or a sociological point of view or even just a literary point of view, you have to at least admit that we are separated historically culturally at least from from the people who who first began to set these stories down and that means we, we've got to be careful when it comes to uh making assumptions about what they meant you know mm-hmm. um, so it, the first and major passage as i say is genesis and it just says very simply the nephilim were in the earth in those days or on the earth sometimes depending on the translation and also after that when the sons of god came in unto the daughters of men and they bore children to them the same were the mighty men that were of old the men of renown so that's literally it as far as genesis is concerned there's one or two other passages we look at along the way but it's always the way i suppose when when something gets described very well people are kind of okay with it and let it go but it's these, these figures who sort of pop up and then disappear again that become figures of mystery, people like Melchizedek, uh, etc. those sort of people. And, and the Nephilim have become that for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people have projected onto them what they would like to see. So if you want, for a moment or two, I might, like, I might just go into the derivation of that word and, and what it means or could mean, depending on, on the various translations. So normally, nowadays, Nephilim is translated almost immediately as, as giants, and that's because that was the translation that was chosen by the uh, the translators who were working to create the edition of the Bible known as the King James, uh, the King James Version, which is probably the most famous one from the sort of the basic Protestant Bible, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and they chose that because within the translations uh, that, that they had in front of them, they were working from um, the Latin Vulgate, which... Had it uh, was, was a Latin translation of the Greek Septuagint, and I, I really apologize. I'm trying to make this as not as technical <laughs> as, as need be, but essentially, what you come back to is one word the Hebrew word Nephilim, which is translated into the Greek Heptokotes and which had become in the Vulgate Gigantes. So when we get Pepticotes, what we're talking about there is actually, uh, it describes a direction and the direction is fallen, okay, the fallen. The Latin translators um, under the school of Jerome chose Gigantes and they seem to have been coming at it more from the folkloric mythological kind of um, commentary that would have been around at the time, particularly the rabbinical targums, the, the, the oral teaching of the Jewish teachers. And so, having chosen gigantes, they chose giant. But that does not necessarily mean a physical giant. It can also mean somebody described as gigantes it can also mean an impressive person or um, someone who is, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, an individual to be to be reckoned with. You know. Right. And so the problem with translating Nephilim even as fallen is that it has, it has quite a number of possible translations. Just, just to give you a, a little experience of the etymology, what they would say is, is once you begin with the Hebrew root im, which is the end, Nephilim, um, people can think also of things like seraphim and cherubim, you're dealing with an order of service, so they become the angels or the archangels, seraphim, cherubim. The Nephilim, at the start, do seem to have an angelic element within them, but we'll see that that's a little bit more subtle. So again, the Hebrew word can be translated as this giant, which again, we can take as a physical giant, or we can also take it as an impressive person, someone who is a giant. I mean, even to this day, we speak of people having giant personalities, things like that.
4: Right.
5: It can be those who have fallen, or those who cause others to fall. Or it can be those who have descended from on high. Or it can be those who are appointed, those who are bound, and even those who have a violent streak about them, or who induce violence in others, or who have themselves been the victims of violence. So you can see in one word, there is just so much, you know, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm trying not to turn this into a a scripture lesson or a catechetics lesson or whatever. But the problem with it is that when they begin to describe nephilim, the very next phrase they use, and again, the context is everything in this, is the idea of the sons of God, right? The sons of God descending to marry into or to beget children with the daughters of men. Now, that phrase in Hebrew is Bina Elohim, Bina Elohim the sons of God, which again has a number of contexts. It can mean the angels themselves. The angels are often referred to as the sons of God. And it's not necessarily indicating gender here at all. Uh, What it means is the progeny or the firstborn, the first created intelligent beings, those who were created before humankind, the bina Elohim. But it can also mean those who hold to the covenant. So the sons of God in that sense, uh, those who descended there is a long, long tradition that after Cain murdered Abel, Adam and Eve had another son, Seth, and it, the line of Seth was the line of the covenant. Those who kept the covenant, they were often known as the shining ones or the holy ones, or the, the people of the original covenant with God. So Cain is sent off into the wilderness as the punishment for his for his sin. And Seth and the tribe of Seth were supposed to live on a high mountain, nowadays we would call it a kind of a place of encounter or a place of of grace, Mount Horeb. And on that mountain, um, they, they held to the covenant, held to the original understanding of the Adamic law. And they're the ones, or at least a portion of those who are supposed to have descended and become Nephilim, according to most Orthodox Jewish commentary, where they would say it wasn't angels or angelic powers, because how can a spirit beget children? But it was the sons of the covenant or a certain number of them who left the covenant and descended to be with the daughters of men, literally with the daughters of Cain, of the fallen ones in that sense. And this is, is what brings out the Nephilim. So again, there are there are multiple ways of translating this, multiple ways of understanding it. The next time we come across the Nephilim is in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verses 32 to 33, in, in the Christian versification of it. And there Moses has sent out a number of, of spies into the, the land of Canaan, Um, to see what opposition will they face when they come to Canaan. And the verse says, and there we saw the Nephilim. These are the spies returning who have been quite shaken by what they have seen. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, those who came of the Nephilim. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight also. So we have this idea of them coming back and being absolutely terrified, saying it's a very bad idea to enter Canaan. These these great gigantic warriors are there, and uh, we were like grasshoppers to them. Now, there are those who say we're dealing with physical giants, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. huge people. And that the the, um, spies of Moses were being absolutely literal in saying, you know, we were as grasshoppers to them. There there is one particular midrash of of the Jews that says that the Nephilim were 42, I think it's 42,000 L's, uh, which is the measurement, which would would have made them a mile high. (laughs) Um, Now, there are all kinds of biological problems with that if that was where you look at it. Their, Their lungs would simply collapse if that was the case. But really, again, it's. You know, it's part of, of a literary tradition which aggrandizes the enemy, so that what we overcome, it looks like we've overcome greater struggles. You know think of, of all of the kind of the epic fighting songs and soldier songs and war songs um, that, that have come down to us from all the different traditions that always say the enemy was much more, you know, mm-hmm. much bigger. We, we faced thousands, you know, I mean, even later we have in, in the scriptures, the idea of, you know, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands, you know. And it's, it's that kind of, of praising of the sort of the heroic figures that come down. A third line of scholarship would suggest that the Nephilim and the entire myth, and when I say myth, I don't mean something that's untrue, but myth in the sense of a story containing meaning, that the story of the Nephilim in that sense may actually have been the interaction of the Hebrews with their pagan neighbors, listening to them talking about their gods, their heroes, etc. And so having to try and accommodate this in some way Who could these demigods and supernatural creatures have been? If they actually existed, they have to have have come originally from God. And so within the Hebrew pantheon, they became these sort of half-angel, half-humans who became the the Nephilim, the the, the heroes themselves.
2: That's very interesting. It reminds me of, and I believe we we talked about this a little bit before, some of the uh, medieval genealogies, and they they show... uh, you know these kings and they'll, they'll go back as far as they can remember and then suddenly it's zeus and thor yeah, and exactly then, and then yeah. you know yeah. eventually on back to you know some of them so jesus and that's where we get the whole bloodline of christ sure
5: yeah yeah, yeah. All, all of all of that and in, and in fact even even within the um within some of those bloodlines there are researchers now who claim to be able to go right back to the to the nephilim themselves to be able to say that certain bloodlines are inherently evil. Mm. Um, and again, there's, as, as we said before, you know, there are huge problems when you begin to decide that certain people or peoples are lesser than because their blood is not as pure as. Right. And, and we know historically where that where that leads to. Right. Um, it leads to, to horrific persecution of, of, of people. And so I think it's very important that when people come to Scripture as such, they understand that the tradition around Scripture is that, that, yes, it is, and this is within, within the tradition, obviously, yes, within the tradition it is considered the inspired and, and divine word, but that various parts of Scripture have various senses to be understood. You know, it's not just picking up the book and opening it and presuming that every line is, is a proof text of your particular viewpoint. You know, the, the, the Bible as we have it now uh, you know, it contains elements of literature that span about 4,000 years. We have various forms of literature, including, you know, the, 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 the wisdom literature, the Psalms, historical narrative, absolutely as well, uh, you know, preaching narratives. Uh, and, and so all of those, essentially, when you're picking up a Bible, you're picking up a library, not a book. You know, it's, it's not meant to be read as a novel from beginning to end. And most people who try to do that, if they 're not doing it with kind of guidance or with I suppose a, a kind of an understanding of what they're picking up, very quickly become bored with it because you hit you know some of the Levitical literature, which is essentially legal codes, and it becomes very, very difficult and very dry indeed to read so the Christian fathers, and, and by this I 'm talking about you know second third century, um, ever before there was any kind of split between East or West or between Protestant or Catholic, the early Christians themselves said that every scriptural text had had four distinct senses. What they called the historical, the, the historical or literal, where you were literally looking back and understanding the text in its historical context. Uh, what they called the tropological, from tropos the, the the Greek to move, which was a moral teaching, that you could find moral teaching in it to tell you which way to go, you know, how to do the good, that you could find allegorical teaching, so it, certain elements of the scripture was symbolic and was meant to be understood in a symbolic way. And they, by the way, would have been very clear that the early books, the earlier you go, particularly into Genesis, you are dealing with essentially mystical, symbolic literature, not stuff that was meant to be taken as a scientific treatise on how things came to be. And the final one, the most important one really, uh, was what they call the anagogical, which was the mystical sense of scripture. To give your listeners just an example of that, if you were to take a text that everybody knows, which is the the, the Christmas story, the story of Christ being born, Mm -hmm. and you have that incident of the shepherds on the hills being called by the angels to adore the Christ, um, the historical sense of that was you go and you see the field, the shepherd's field in Bethlehem to this day, people can point to it and they'll say that's where it all happened. The tropological is, the, the moral is, is saying, you know, to be aware and to be awake, to be listening for divine message and when it comes to, to follow divine inspiration. The allegorical, the symbolic sense is the whole idea of of the Christ being born in Bethlehem, which fulfills earlier prophecies, etc. And, and even Bethlehem itself, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread, uh, literally the origin of bread or the place where the bread is made. And, and that Further, then goes into the whole the idea of Christ as bread or the living bread. But the anagogical, which is one of my favorite ones about this particular text that the, the fathers agreed on, was that the shepherds minding the sheep are an image of the person who sits in interior watchfulness and allows the sheep, i.e., your thoughts, to come to rest. And that it's only when the thoughts have come to rest that the angelic can appear and that we can come to know the divine. So there are four distinct senses in that. And if we were to apply that to the I mean literally three lines of scripture that's about the Nephilim, I don't think in any of those four senses we get to a hairy ape man in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: yeah. So I guess the question is you know given what we know and, and how little hmm. we actually know about the Nephilim, it seems like the hook of them being fallen Mm. has set deeper than any other interpretation, let's put it that
5: way yeah absolutely and and I think an awful lot of i suppose popular media has done that hugely. It's an exciting one, you know it's it's mm-hmm. a kind of a more magical mystical one, the idea of of these these angels descending and and sort of falling and i suppose there's a slightly um sort of sensual element to it as well the idea of of the angelic falling in love or, or descending to lust after after human women and then getting the angelic nature mixing with the with the human nature in that in that sense the most again early theologians were very clear that angels are beings of spirit and as such do not and cannot beget children with the earthly order they simply can't cross over in the uh, judeo-christian and 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 even most most of the islamic understanding as well however they did speak of things like succubi and incubi etc and and even the whole changeling idea and what they felt was going on there was that the demonic elements in the in in those instances were harvesting the, the material from both males and females and mixing it themselves And so this was the way in which the medievals at least understood that a a half breed, as they called it, could have been produced. In other words, that that through um, demonic artifice, somebody would think that they were uh, being with a human when they weren't. And then that being would carry off, whether it was the semen or the eggs, depending on the male or female being seduced. And again, working with another, um, this element would be left. And the only thing that's really surprising about that is that within the sort of medieval, both fairy lore and demonology, what you really have is a template for an awful lot of the abduction narratives that we now see, the kind of alien abduction end of things. I think one of the things that, that's important for people to do if, if they're actually reading back over the scripture is to get very good translations. For example, in scripture, there are three descendants of the Nephilim, three, three, giant, <laughs> three giants as such who are mentioned, and they're presumed to be descendants of the, of the Nephilim. So you have um, Goliath, the famous David and Goliath. In both the Dead Sea Scrolls, which aren't included in the, in the, in the canon of scripture, but are, are sort of um, peripheral to it, and the writing of Josephus, one of the great Jewish historians, Goliath is given the measurement of four cubits and a span. Now, you think of every picture you've seen of Goliath, and you see him as this extraordinary giant, you know, 20 foot tall, kind of towering over the, the, the people. But if you actually look at four cubits in a span, that works out at being about six foot nine inches, which isn't really gigantic by any means. It might right. have been I mean, tall for the time. Yeah,
2: been very tall for the time, but not outside the realm of possibility.
5: No, no. Yeah. So again, we need to look at how our popular imagination, you know, takes the images and, and, and conflates this. In later texts, a couple of centuries later, they push him up a bit and they make him six cubits in a span, which would get him to nine foot nine inches. Okay. So again, that would be very large even, even today, but it still would be within the range of human growth. Extraordinary growth, but within the range of human growth. Like we're not talking about mile high giants, right. you know, in that sense. Now, Goliath, it, again, in the, in, the, in the Targums and the midrashes, is supposed to have been descended from one of the Nephilim as such. But it, but there's no actual sense in that, that he was a um, half-angelic or half-demonic or whatever. They simply say that that having come from the, the, the Nephilim, that the Philistines had mixed their blood with the Nephilim. And again, that could as easily have been some kind of human tribe as it could anything else.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: The next guy who I kind of like is the the Anakim. And and the Anakim were were, um, a group, a tribe, who are expelled from a particular part of of Canaan by Joshua, the successor of Moses. And they are supposed to have run off and found refuge, the the remnants of them found refuge with the tribes of the Philistine and have sort of mixed their blood or diluted the giant's blood even further with them. That's all we hear of them. They're literally referred to once or twice in in the scriptures and that's it. But the, the one who's most famous and most famous because everybody has claimed, has claimed him. The, the Irish have claimed him, the English have claimed him, everybody's claimed him, and that's, that's Og or Og, often referred to as Og, King of Bashan. Um, he is referred to in scriptures definitively as the last of the giants, the last of the Rephaim, who were the, the men who were descended from the original giants. And we're told that his bedstead was 13 foot long. Now. The word bedstead gets all kinds of excitement. I think even von Daniken wrote about his particular iron bedstead that people used to point to um, in in Bashan and say this was his this was his bed. So can you imagine how big he must have been if his bed was thirteen foot long? But the actual word, the Hebrew word for bedstead, can easily be translated in two other ways, which is tomb or sarcophagus, and that's that's fair enough.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Or as a standing stone, a megalithic standing stone. And that seems to be one of the first connections of the idea of the megaliths, the the standing stones all across Palestine. Um, Now we know they were even in Africa, possibly in Australia as well, right the way across into into Europe, that the megalithic culture was often associated by later peoples with giants because they looked at these stones and they said, how could they possibly have moved them?
2: Hmm, You know? Gotcha, yeah.
5: So you get this extraordinary connection between them. But what I'm interested in With regard to Og and indeed the Anakim and the Raphaim, is that they were also known as the people of the shields and they were seen to be buried in mounds with shields on their chests, uh, sorry, shields at their heads and swords on their chests. They were seen to have a Bronze Age kind of culture. Um, certainly not going further than the Bronze Age, occasionally in the midrashes, things like extra fingers and extra teeth and things like that are mentioned as part of them. And again, if you if you had a small group of a physical and earthly bloodline, you would imagine you would get some kinds of very often there was sort of interbreeding with, own, yeah. with your own relatives and things like that that went on. But what's important is for those of us who are looking for a Sasquatch connection is that all the way through, you are speaking of people who have a technological culture. These people, if they existed at all, were at least at Bronze Age level, were constructing megalithic monuments. There is no mention of them being hairy or furry in any way, um, you know, shape or form. That only comes in when people begin to look at things like the Mark of Cain and when elements of both mormonism and the books of mormon etc the book of mormon begins to to look at that and that's a much 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 later source Mm -hmm. so again what i would say is if people are looking for giants they'll certainly find evidence of giant people who built you know had a technological civilization to some extent were known as as warmongers at least certainly frightened the more agrarian agricultural hebrews seemed to work with the Philistines and left behind megalithic structures and mounds. And that's very familiar, I'm sure, to yourself in terms of the American, the mound builders and all of these rumors of giant skeletons and very often having uh, bronze swords and shields and and the stories of, of various elements. So I think if we're looking for Nephilim as giants, that's where you will find them rather than as running around in the woods nowadays as... Um, as sasquatch or bigfoot
2: yeah are there any indications that the bloodline of the nephilim have survived beyond you know biblical times
5: there's no indication from scripture there's no indication from history and in fact there was the understanding that the original the original nephilim were either imprisoned in in a form of hell known as tartarus which is a place of of darkness and again heavily borrowed from um, some of the pagan cultures that were around and about, and also an understanding that the bloodline was finished by God through the flood, um, and that that was one of the reasons that the flood took place, was to to get rid of this mix of bloodline between the fallen away Nephilim, whether you want to call them the angelic Nephilim, or the sons of the covenant who left the covenant, and uh, having, having kind of diluted that blood with the daughters of Cain as such. So most Orthodox Christian sources and Jewish sources would say, no, they did not continue and they were extinct, sort of post-flood. The the last remnants of them being these individuals who, because they were big, because they were physically um, impressive, because they were warriors, occasionally had the title Nephilim given to them but actually in the Hebrew scriptures they distinguish between the Nephilim and the, the Rephaim or the Rephaim who were the giant warriors of Canaan and were not necessarily seen as as having a direct connection with the Nephilim as such but again like you're dealing with sources that are thousands of years old so right it's quite possible that what one person one school of of translation or one school of thought would have uh, would be absolutely opposed by others, you know?
2: Yeah, I think it's, and I could be wrong, but I believe, you know, when I brought up the idea to some of these Nephilim or Bigfoot people before Mm. that they were kind of done in in the flood, I believe they quoted that and also after line at me as the reasoning for uh, them being there after the flood.
5: Yeah, yeah. But again, you're quoting, you're quoting in English and that's, that's the problem. So, again, even the sense of time, languages have various senses of time. Mm -hmm. And so I I often quote the fact that, you know, if you speak in English about your feelings, how you are feeling at the moment, you conflate time and sensation as one. So it's I am happy. I am sad. So sensation and time become one thing and you become that thing for that moment. Whereas if you look at some of the older languages, um, so, for example, in Irish Uh, if we were to say i'm sad or i'm happy we'd say happiness is upon me at present sadness is upon me at present and so it gives the idea of a flowing continuum of emotion Mm -hmm. that shifts over a stable center and so that is so time and feeling and and presence are, are different things for most of the older languages so when you begin to look at at a translation and again The problem is that there is, with great respect to the American churches, there is a canonization of particularly the King James translation, which doesn't allow for any kind of deep diving often into Mm -hmm. the cultural sense of the language um, from which the scriptures are drawn, which isn't just Hebrew, but is, particularly the earlier texts, is, you know almost a proto-Hebrew. Right. Uh, and, and so to simply say, oh, well, it says, and they were there after, it could mean they were there for a couple of days. It could mean that they were there until the flood itself. And it could mean that they that they are still with us now. But you have to accept that all of those senses are possible.
2: Yeah, we are losing some of the, well, like you said, some of the sort of cultural interpretation of this. Yeah. So when I wrote Where the Footprints End." i didn't and i did this on purpose i didn't dive too deeply into native american folklore mm, because sure. you know i was told by native americans mm. that you really don't have the cultural understanding for this so absolutely yeah, so and i, and I, I just sort of respectfully backed up and i said well i'll look at it from you know mostly for the most part through sure. a european sense you know
5: sure yeah I, I think it's so important i mean when translation of a, to, to a culture to give you an example When the the first Christian missionaries got to Korea, they began naturally enough to translate the scripture into Korean. And one of the problems that they had was that when they got to the passage, the famous passage in in scripture where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, you know, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. The problem was there were no sheep in Korea. Uh So how do you translate shepherd? So one of the translators at the time said, well, they don't have sheep, but they have geese. So he translated it as, I am the good goose herder. I know my geese and my geese know me. Now, the problem with that is a shepherd is someone traditionally who walked ahead of the sheep, had a relationship of trust with them, and the sheep followed the shepherd. But a goose herder traditionally took a stick and beat the geese along in front of him. Mm. And so just as, 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 as a sense of... Why many individuals were not attracted to the figure of the good goose herder as opposed to the good shepherd, and I think one of the things that, that we lose sometimes is is a subtlety of understanding that you know when we begin to say, okay, well, the nephilim are giants, so wherever else we find giants in culture, therefore they must be nephilim. There is a huge leap in that right yeah, a massive leap in that, and it is a kind of a projection of What is very often, um, you know, a kind of a a white Eurocentric or at least Christian-centric proselytizing viewpoint on other cultures, rather than actually sitting and listening to the other culture and saying, have you got something you can teach me? And also finding, like the the early church, for example, um, and I'm talking second, third, fourth centuries, used to speak of the the logios spermatikoi, which was the seeds of the divine word, which they said were present in every culture and in every religion, and in every human being. And so the Christian was supposed to seek the logius spermaticae in the other traditions, and to reverence it, and to respect it there. In other words, that the seed of the word was already sown. So the early church referred to people like Plato and uh, Socrates, etc., as Saint Plato and Saint Socrates, because they saw them as having uh, lived virtuous lives according to their own culture. It's, it's something we could certainly return to, yeah. um, to be able to, to recognize, you know, the, the, the tremendous richness that's, that's there. And so when, when you have somebody who then says, well, if I find, you know, giants in ancient Egypt or giants in Samaria or giants in this epic or that epic, what we're really talking about is the last of the Nephilim who made it to England and became, you know, the giants that King Arthur fought without ever looking at any of the actual cultural context of that so many leaps are being made at, at, at that point for me anyway, personally, I would find it extremely difficult to allow that logic gets me there.
2: Right. Yeah. You
5: know, I, th- I think jumps get, get us there and it might be sometimes a desire, you know, we, we see what we want to see all of us. And I include myself in that. All you know, we see what we want to see. So it's, it's important for us to kind of um, maybe take a step back and breathe. And especially if you're dealing with, as you were saying, like dealing with the, the indigenous peoples of the Americas to be able to say, you know, what do you want to tell us, if anything? Mm -hmm. And are we capable of hearing it? You know, I think sometimes we're we're just not capable of of hearing the opinion that's maybe anti our own.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's demonstrated in so many of, and not to get us too far off track, but so many of the flesh and blood Bigfoot folks are happy to use various native american names for you know bigfoot or what mm, what, sure, what sure, seems yeah. to be bigfoot big hairy things in yeah. the woods but immediately turn it off when they when the same uh legends say they were you know magic users or they, yeah, sure. they came from another existence or they, you know they, yeah, yeah. anything that kind of goes against their uh their belief in it that so that they're really picking and choosing which which i find incredibly frustrating
5: yeah 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 but um Gerald Durrell, the famous naturalist and conservationist, w- was someone who who, who said that the, the, his he, at one stage he worked as a collector for zoos in the days when when that was actually a kind of a, a profession and and something that was important. I think Ivan Sanderson did the same actually back in the twenties and thirties, but nineteen twenties thirties. But he he was saying that he found in the end that the best way of dealing with with of, of trying to find animals for, for zoos uh, was not to go and hunt them himself, but was to simply Ask the locals what was around, you know, and how did they live, and what did they eat, and and you know the, the various habits of of the creatures that were there. And very often he ended up bringing back creatures that in invertebrates weren't supposed to be there, mm-hmm. you know, because he had gone respectfully and listened, and and I think there is a respect needed that says, well, if if a culture that's been here for thousands of years says these things exist, but also says and they do A, B, or C, you can't accept, you know, the truth of of one part and exclude the truth of the other without at least investigating it, without at least taking it into account, you know? I would feel anyway. And I think one of the things that's very present with regard to the Nephilim and and, and Bigfoot is the fact that you also have, maybe unbeknownst to themselves to some extent, but there is this uh, belief in certain um, I would say, Protestant traditions by and large, which is that everything that is, everything that exists, must be in Scripture somewhere.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: There can't be anything that's outside Scripture. And so we, we go searching through Scripture for anything then that refers to any phenomenon that we're afraid mightn't be in there. Right. And so, I mean, at various different times in the past, we've had, you know, Sasquatch as Cain or as the children of Cain. We've had Sasquatch as Esau um, the, 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 because it was made, mentioned that he was he was a hairy fellow mm-hmm. um, Sasquatch as the Nephilim. And then, you know, back to it's all demons again. Right. Um, you know, if they exist, they must be this because they can't be angels. So therefore, they must be. And, you know, Scripture is not a science book. Its philosophy and its theology and its spirituality, and because they have particular interests within them in the world around them, of course it's going to feature the natural world an awful lot. But it's not meant, and it was never meant to be a kind of a compendium of all things.
2: Yeah, I think very, I kind of very frustratingly said <laughs> as regards this one time, not everything has to be in the Bible. No, uh, not it, at all. it doesn't make the Bible incorrect if Bigfoot isn't in it. <laughs>
5: well, the very people who who are searching for the scriptures, for example, about the, the Nephilim, continually quote the Book of Enoch, and the the early Christians, the early, the early Church, were very clear that 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 while Enoch was a reverenced text, it was never considered a scriptural text. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book itself, based on pure manuscript tradition alone, it, it was written, you know, in pieces. And probably through various, went through various traditions over about three to four hundred years. So, uh, and that's to say nothing of Enoch book two and Enoch book three. Um, it seems that even the early writers were just as good as at the Marvel Studios, et cetera, for sequels along the way. You know, <laughs> they, they, they made sure the heroes came back. So, you know, you have this extraordinary figure, Enoch, who goes through these angelic revelations and, and moves through uh, the nine heavens and and the imperial heaven itself and is later taken up into heaven himself and um, he's the grandfather of noah in the lineages the lineage tradition and you know is is again in christian tradition the figure of enoch at least is supposed to uh, return before the end times along with elijah but exactly what that all means uh, again you know you will find school after school and and theory after theory going right the way back to the to the early ages, uh, and so I'm always suspicious of someone who suddenly appears saying, "Well, everybody up to now got it wrong, but I've got it right." Mm-hmm. You know, they may well have done so, but you know, I want to you know see the work right. um, that right. that got you there. I mean, at one stage, I think there was even a fame a reasonably famous piece of bigfoot literature that was even naming one of the big bigfoot as enoch yeah you know yes. um, mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> you know that's okay and and maybe that's how that person experienced it but if you want to take it back to the scriptures as a text um then i i think you, you you've got to do the work on it as a text
4: mm-hmm
2: another thing that gets expressed sometimes and perhaps this is the the whole fallen angel question we'll, hmm. let, let's step back if we were to take the idea that the fallen were mating with human women as such sure. are these the same angels that would have followed Lucifer from that group
5: hmm. again what school do you want to follow so essentially you have in orthodox Christian thought and orth- orthodox Um, judaic thought you have one angelic fall that takes place Mm -hmm. prior to the creation of the material universe the tradition and it's it's i mean it is tradition it's it it, this is not in scripture as such but the the tradition was that um lucifer as the as the sort of the, the highest angel rebels against the plan of god to create a human being as the mix of Um, spiritual and earthly, and that the human being is going to be the perfect creation, will bear the divine image and likeness. And so in pride, can't take that and, and falls. Now, we speak of, you know, and there was a war in heaven, and people are very, you know, very good at sort of picturing all of this. But again, it's very important to recognize this is allegorical and anagogical. What we're speaking of is a spiritual intelligence that falls into desire, falls into ego, falls into itself and so loses the angelic resonance with with the divine, to put it mildly. We're told we we can't even count the number of angelic spirits that there are, but that a large number of them fell following Lucifer, and that these become demons as as, as such, that these are the, the demonic entities. Now, some schools of thought say that it was a group of those that became the Nephilim, or that at least fell um, from their vocation as watchers of, of humankind the the um, uh, egregori those who are supposed to watch and care for and look after humankind and then there's another group that would say no no there was the first big group that fell and they were the really important ones and they were the big ones that fell but then they later tempted the egregori by tempting them with lust um, tempting them to to want to mix themselves with earthly pleasures and there was about 200 of those led by uh, the demon Azazel, um, sometimes given another Hebrew name, Samyazah, sometimes pronounced Shamyazah, one and the same, though, as Azazel, who is supposed to have entered into an angelic pact with 200, well, I suppose 199 other angels, who then fell and who um, mixed themselves with the daughters of men. And they produced the generation of people known as the Eliud, who were the uh, the mix of those children and all of those, according to that particular school of thought, all of those were um, extinguished in the flood. The angels themselves, because they still had angelic nature being condemned to um, Tartarus, to the realm of darkness. So, again, Orthodox Christianity and Judaism would say that the initial major fall is is credo is essential to faith and to understanding. Um, this second, the idea of a second fall or a second step in that fall is tradition rather than anything um, necessary to faith as such. Gotcha.
2: So woven into this, I've, mm-hmm. I've also seen the idea that the Antichrist is or will be of the bloodline of the Nephilim.
5: Yeah, um, anti-size. I suppose the important thing about the Antichrist first and foremost is that it is more concept than person. Going back to the letters of John in the New Testament, uh, John speaks of the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, He says, the Antichrist has already come. The Antichrist has been among you. There have been many Antichrists and there will be many Antichrists. Uh, The Antichrist with a capital A is uh, the the sort of the son of perdition, the figure who is supposed to appear at the very end to kind of oppose, oppose the good basically and precipitate the final judgment. But that figure, we have been, uh, you know, again in scripture and coming at it from a Christian point of view, Christ is very, very clear that the end times will come when they come as a surprise. Nobody will know. So, you know, all he says to, to the Christians at that stage, to his followers is, you know, when that time comes, stand erect, hold your heads high for your salvation is near at hand. However, human beings being human beings, there have been endless endless iterations of you know it's coming it's coming it's coming it'll be here tomorrow it'll be here in 10 years time he's alive he's in the world now um he's head of the one world government he's the president of this country the president of that country you know and so i think one of the dangers is is again that we we start ascribing to individuals these particular roles because that way lies paranoia. And to be honest, it gives more, I often find with people who are, who are interested in, in, in this area, they tend to become more obsessed with wanting certainty and wanting um, absolute definite knowledge. And that's not actually faith. You know, faith is to recognize that the end of the world could come for you or for me uh, in the next moment, Sure. because our end is going to come at any point. So we need to be ready for that. You know, and if you're ready for that in each moment, then if the end times come during your lifetime or during my lifetime, then that's OK, because we'll be ready for that, too.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Christianity is apocalyptic in the fullest sense of the word. And the Greek apocalypse meant the pulling back of a curtain to let the sunlight into a room. It's not anything to do with, you know, great, horrific change. It's to do with uh, illumination, uh, enlightenment, the the awareness of the divine Um, as love and as compassion entering the world so when you begin to look at the apocalypse from that point of view that's an important element the other thing is like all of the be carefuls i've issued around translations of scripture particularly with the book of revelation or, or the apocalypse it is it's a mystery text it was meant to be understood symbolically and it was written by a group of people who were being persecuted and so were being very careful about what they wrote down. So the historical sense of it is extremely important. If any of your, your listeners out there are looking for a, a good, and I, th- this is within the Christian context, but a good breakdown of the book of Revelation and its symbolism and what it meant in the early church particularly. There's a, there's a very fine book called The Lamb's Supper uh, by a gentleman called Scott Han who is a Catholic theologian and um, being very clear, he's a Catholic theologian, but he goes into what, what the symbolism of the, Re- the book of Revelation meant in the early days of the church, uh, which we've often lost touch with or, or track track of. Um, right. So when you come to the asking, you know, whose bloodline will the antichrist be? And there's, there's, you know, again, there are various Christian sects who will dismiss everything I'm saying simply because I'm Catholic. And so, therefore, not to be trusted with with any of this information, because they're convinced that, you know, Rome is the great Babylon, etc. And if that's your faith and that's your belief, I respect it. I disagree with it, but I respect it. But it's important, I suppose, for us to begin to recognize that, again, once we get into trying to judge the who, we're really standing in the place of the divine then at that point. And that becomes problematic. It's as problematic as those people who many years ago decided that the mark of Cain meant color in your skin right you know and as a result justified prejudice against and and indeed outright racism against people of color because they squeezed scripture into that and in the process not only rejected color but but whitened Jesus and his apostles and disciples beyond uh, recognition <laughs> so yeah, I think we just need to be careful of anything that, that, that starts saying, you know, the blood of this people, the blood of that people or this particular family line or bloodline. Also, having said that, if you could actually, I mean, even if you go with New Earth creationism and say that, that everything only existed, has only existed for about 4000 years, four and a half thousand years, even if that was the, the extent of time, a bloodline would be so diluted by now from the very beginning that it would be it would be almost impossible to say that someone was of a particular line right you know practical biology wins out yes
2: are there any scriptural indications of the beast from revelation say if if we're going to call that you know the antichrist yeah. the, mm-hmm. the big one that it comes from any bloodline no
5: yeah absolutely not no all that it says is that that uh, if and when he arises he will be a powerful ruler and very well able to influence people. Mm -hmm. And this is the most important piece in the book of Revelation, that people won't know it's him. They won't recognize him as such until the very end. The elect who are saved from him and who disagree with him disagree with his teaching or his his belief or his way of uh, his kind of um, program for the world. But they don't actually know that it's him until the very end when all things are revealed so uh you know if somebody points at somebody and says that's the antichrist or indeed points at somebody and says that's the messiah the one thing you can be pretty sure of is that it's neither Hmm. in in that moment again it's down to um recognizing that as as just as human beings we want to know we're uncomfortable with mystery you know i often think it goes back to um Every year somebody will write a book or will produce a TV program and they'll say, you know, uh, Christ actually, you know, went to India or, you know, went with Joseph of of Arimathea to tin mines in Cornwall or spent his time learning from the yogis in Tibet or or whatever. And like all of those things, perfectly possible.
4: Mm -hmm.
5: But I think really we write those things because we're very uncomfortable thinking about the fact that, well, if you believe Christ was who Christians believe he is, that he spent 30 years just living family life. Uh, and I think there's a huge message in that, which is that actually it's in the ordinary that we discover the extraordinary, that it's in the day-to-day life and living of, of human life, that we really touch the divine, that that's where our essence actually is meant to rest and to be. So absolutely, if you want to tell me, you know, Jesus for 10 years was at the top of the Himalayas, I have no reason to say that he, he mightn't have been, he could easily have been, if he'd wanted to, sure. But I think a lot of it comes out of our, our lack of comfort with the idea that, you know what, family is where real enlightenment begins to happen, with the closest with you. And, and if you believe, as I do, that Jesus was divine as well as being human, then there's a pretty strong message in a gospel that says, you know, for over 33 three and a bit lifespan, someone chose silence, seclusion, quiet, and the ordinary as being the major part of their teaching.
2: Powerful message.
5: Well, yeah, and, and you know, people get very uncomfortable with that. They want the extraordinary. You know, sure, I mean, yeah. I want the extraordinary. That's why I listen to Strange Familiars. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's important for us, I suppose, to to kind of breathe a bit and stand back from it and ask ourselves, what hungers are we really feeding here with all of this
3: stuff?
2: Mm-hmm. Some of these ideas, again, this goes back into, you know, the whole thing I talked about with the, the bloodline of Christ idea and mm-hmm. that whole, mm-hmm. like, Holy blood, holy grail, all that, that sure. stuff. Uh, there's a heavy reliance on like non-canonical and apocryphal texts mm. and so forth. Now, obviously, and I'm going to go ahead and predict that you're saying like when we look at those, we we have to look at those culturally and and with you sure. know everything as well. But what is the difference between you know why are certain books considered canonical and others not?
5: You sure. Know? OK, well, uh, first of all, the canon, the canon of Scripture it comes from a Greek word, which means a reed that was used for measuring a building. So what we're, we're saying is like what made it into the building and what was left outside the building. And there were pretty strong debates, as you can imagine, uh, and various branches of Christianity to this day, and indeed various branches of Judaism, if we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, admit some and leave others out and i suppose there there is the the dogmatic answer of the church itself which would say the scriptures that we include are those that have been handed down to us by tradition as being of the direct lineage of the apostles
4: mm-hmm.
5: and we leave out anything that we are unsure of a lot of the non canonical not apocryphal; they're they're different. The apocryphal yeah. are different. We'll talk about doesn't But the non-canonical books, when you look at them historically, a lot of them are very late, and they have been influenced by the Gnostics, the Maniches, various groups that would not be um, along the same lines as the kind of orthodox Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. whatever whatever you think of, the, of that and I'm not in any way impugning sure. um, th- those groups I'm just saying that that's that's the way it would have been seen so it was felt from about the year 200 on that there needed to be a definitive list and um, a couple of the church councils looked at it it is a complete myth and I just say to anybody who, who hears this and who maybe gets a bit uh, rankled over it just go and read the history yourself but it's a complete myth that it was a Roman emperor who decided what was in and what was out. Mm-hmm. The councils at the time when they met, met in the presence of the emperor, because at the time, Christianity was a state religion. So the emperor's presence at the opening end and closing of the councils uh, was a sort of a, a seal of approval. But it was the, what we call patriarchal bishops, in other words, bishops who had direct line of succession back to the apostles, who chose the books, and it was pretty much defined by the year 327 or so. Now, one of the things I suppose that's important to say as well is that that doesn't mean it was, you know, the doors were closed and and, and were bolted. Various groups still, you know, maintained connections with other texts. For example, to this day, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is one of the oldest churches in the world, they admit Enoch as part of the canon. Um, and are very strong on that and again you'd find a lot of the later church fathers as well as being very strong on what the canon was but they would also refer to other texts and and would have used things like the Didache um, the Shepherd of Hermes uh, the Gospel of Thomas there seems to be have been some overlap with some of the Essene texts as well again this is fluid it's 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 a living civilization as it's happening so it's not like there was a a library with books on um, in fact if you if you ever Come to Ireland, come to Dublin, we'll, we'll show you a museum here in Dublin. We have the oldest extant piece of the Gospel of John, which was collected by a, a gentleman called Chester Beatty, who was a famous eastern antiquarian. It's a very, very small piece, but it's there. And it's the oldest that we know of, probably, I think they reckon somewhere around 90 to 120 AD. But there's a piece of one of the letters of St. Paul uh, next to it. And what I love about it is St. Paul is on one side, but on the other side seems to be a shopping list. (laughs) So again, you know, it was living culture as these were being passed around. And it was an oral culture. So a lot of it was, you know, people would read aloud and people were very good at remembering. And for those who kind of feel, you know, scripture should be locked in and blocked in, remember that the very end of the Gospel of John says that there were many other things that Jesus said and did. And if I was to write them all down, not all the books in the world would be enough to fill them. You know, good literary device kind of finishing off in that way and saying, you know, tune in next week, sort of. But there's a lot there. So that was the kind of creation of the canon as such. The next wave of sort of wobbling with the canon from after the, the 300s or so was right up to The Protestant Reformation, and the first one to sort of really begin to throw things out and change things around then at that stage was Martin Luther, who took a number of what would have been considered canonical up until then, some of the epistles. He actually threw out the whole book of Revelation at one stage, he took bits of it back afterwards, but essentially anything that he thought didn't really fit in with his theology began to be taken out. And, you know, teachers and preachers ever since have. Accepted some and, and refused others. So it's an organic body rather than a a locked library, I think, is the way the way to look at
1: it.
2: I think, now, you know, just personally, mm. I, I think that part of the appeal is that there is an idea of secrecy and maybe even danger mm. to these uh, non-canonical works. Like, sure. Know, like they were eliminated for some reason and there must oh, be yeah. secrets there.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that goes right back to the the two what 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 are often referred to in christian theology as the perennial heresy which is manichaeism which is effectively uh, sees god as not um a kind of omniscient omnipotent deity but uh, one who is opposed by an equal evil force and the threads of manichaeism appear right the way through to even present-day christianity if you have somebody talking about demons and the devil as though you know at any moment they could overcome everything and overcome god even you know it's almost as though god just in the nick of time manages to defeat things or to or to, to fight this constant war that's really manichaeism as opposed to christianity mm. and then you have the, the gnostic the, the other one was the, the gnostic and that was the idea that there was again secret knowledge secret practices it was kind of a mystery religion a conflation of a lot of the Greek and Elinusian mysteries with a lot of the, the Christian teaching. Because uh, as, as Christianity spread out from Israel, it, it really it took on a lot of Greek philosophy and, and used the framework of Greek philosophy to explain itself to the classical world. But at the same time, naturally enough, the Greek world also took elements of Christianity. You know, and again, people often don't like hearing this, but there was a, a huge flow and mix of ideas that was going on and you know we would believe providentially the spirit was was in all of that but it can shake people sometimes when they realize just how much went across borders at, at that time how, how soft the, the kind of definitions were and so you often have people accusing each other of falling into these things but not necessarily for the right reasons maybe even accusing each other of these things the important thing I would say, I suppose, is right up to this present day, there's there's always this idea that I'm going to find some secret that nobody else knows, right. and this will give me whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's, it's not that we don't look into the, as I said before, the kind of the mystical interpretations of Scripture, they're very, very present, and there are ways and means of being kind of contemplatively uh, present, and methodologies, you know, we have our contemplative methodologies like every other tradition has, but it's not... Secret in the sense of forbidden to outsiders, there would just be the understanding that um, people need to be grounded in the sort of more basic practices or a more basic devotional life before they would move into dealing with deeper forms of meditative uh, prayer, etc. Mm-hmm. Because if people aren't ready for, and I think every tradition would say this, I certainly know the Buddhist tradition says it. If people aren't ready for it, it can actually do damage. You know, it's important as opposed to think about it more in terms of. Not so much secrets, but the people who wield secrets can often use them as ways of gaining power, gaining influence, you know, and uh, sometimes that can go in very negative directions.
2: Yeah, I tend to agree. Thus, this my uh, personal discomfort um, when I was, even when I was uh, younger and, and more involved with the occult, I was very mm. uncomfortable with the idea that. In these you know these sort of um, high magic as they call themselves mm. uh, schools having secret knowledge and it just mm. it just didn't sit right with me that certain people would possess knowledge and others wouldn't and you wouldn't just share it like just if you have this knowledge and and you wouldn't just share it it just you know something about that and that that's mm. why I say folk traditions seem uh, very nice to yeah, me they because sure. they are for the people. <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: and, 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 and and very often i think there is a compassion in them yes that sometimes the um the higher methodologies um to call it that don't tend to concentrate on um mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot can be about the individual practitioner gaining whatever right uh, power right. insight wisdom whatever it is rather than service
4: mm-hmm.
5: whereas i think a lot of the folk magic if you want to call it that practitioners you know they, they were people who who saw themselves as having a, a role of service to the community absolutely and very often took it took it so seriously that there was the belief that things would go wrong for them if they tried to make something of themselves you know out of it if anybody's interested there's a wonderful series of books by uh, a gentleman but he's a it's a Greek name Kyriakos Markides um, he is an s- anthropologist in the University of Maine, I believe, but he wrote a series of books about a mystical Christian, to some extent, I'd say more Gnostic Christian, but, or esoteric Christian, but Christian school of healers. The first volume is called The Magus of Stravolos, I think. If you look up Marquides anyway, you'll find it. Uh, he then further later in in his life uh, went on to study the monastic methodologies on Mount Athos in Greece, which is very interesting as well. But he concentrates on one particular mystic. I think he was in Cyprus and has died since. But again, his his absolute emphasis on the fact that anything that he was given was for the service of others Mm -hmm. rather than self-aggrandizement was hugely important. Um, yeah. It kind of earths people in that way.
2: Yeah, I, I think that is a very, very important distinction with any of that mm-hmm. stuff. Look at what they're trying to accomplish and who they're trying to serve, I guess. If, if it's if it's self-serving,
5: yeah. beware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, if, if someone begins to find that as a path for themselves, you know, or as a, as a way to spiritual illumination or that the the, like whatever path you're on my my only question to anybody and this is a question i have to ask myself all the time as well the only question is you know am i seeing a transformation towards greater compassion Mm. because i think if that's not happening there's something wrong somewhere yeah um we had a very old monk he's now gone to god but he was one of my great teachers an extraordinary man uh, brother Bruno, but he, he used to say, a spirituality that does not transform positively is a false spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's kind of a good touchstone to have.
2: Absolutely. So we got very deep in the philosophy and in the weeds there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just kind of lighten it up a little bit. Sure, 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 sure. Who are the hairy characters in the Bible? Yeah. oh, es- okay, Esau, um, well,
5: mentioned- we have we have we have a couple. Esau is the one that that's very often referred to. so he was the brother of Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, he's referred to as Ruddy and Harry. I saw somebody make the jump to Yeti uh, <laughs> from that. Uh, you know, here suit and and so Abraham, as he's dying, uh, wants to give his firstborn son his blessing and uh, through the um shall we say manipulation of their mother, the younger son receives the, the blessing rather than rather than Esau through um cutting off uh, the hide of a goat and putting that on his arms so that his blind father could feel his arms and uh. feel the hair and, and think it was Esau so he must have been pretty hairy if they needed a goat a right. goat hide for that but yeah he's often linked as well in a kind of a syncretistic way but to the epic of Gilgamesh and the uh the wild man figure there um Enkidu, I I think, is the the, the name of the guy there. And again, there may have been, you know, it was the same area. Stories, myths, they they get told and retold and figures are borrowed. And and that's the way these things things happen. So there there might have been some similarity between them. Uh, The next person for whom hair is an extremely important uh, element is, is Samson, the famous Samson, whose strength resided in his hair. But really what they're talking about there is the breaking of a vow and probably a vow of chastity. The Nazarites uh, were men who dedicated themselves completely to God and um, didn't marry. And one of the signs of that was that they never cut their hair. So when we have Delilah uh, seducing Samson and finding the secret of his strength and cutting his hair while he slept, most commentators would say that that's really a kind of a um, a euphemism. And uh, really what we're talking about is is kind of an allegory of the sexual domination of the the, the masculine by the feminine mm. and that this is considered a negative however you want to see that in modern modern view but that's at least it was a negative in the, in those days in the culture and so samson loses his eyesight his ability to to actually see clearly and um, because he's uh, confused in that way and must regrow his hair in other words must must take back the discipline before he's able to conquer uh, once again and also actually kill himself in the process so yeah uh, hair in that sense has a kind of a, a sense of uh, kind of sacredness of um, an indication that there is power in it there is presence in it it is connected very often to virility especially in the in the, in the male sense and in the female sense it's seen as as the, the sort of the crowning glory I think the scriptures refer to the, the, the hair of of a woman as you know as her crowning glory so again symbols of repentance penance etc very often include the shaving of heads or the cutting of hair as a sign that, that when people are out of sync with god and want to want to return to the covenant in that sense there's one or two again debates around particular animals that are mentioned in scripture and what they may actually be you know uh, so we have um, uh, whether it's leviathan you know the great Sea serpent, often translated as a great whale, it can even be translated as a great turtle or crocodile, or behemoth, which was sometimes translated as hippo, but um, I don't know, if you read the description of behemoth, it doesn't sound much like a hippo, but there doesn't appear to be too many mentions of ape for a people who were near Egypt, who at times worshipped the ape and had great veneration for it, and at other times just simply had them there from trading. Mm-hmm. Um doesn't seem to be much mention of the ape as such, um, other than as a, a kind of um, something that one would find in royal courts or, right. or given, you know, given to, to the gardens of, of rulers as these sort of menageries that they that they kind of had. We do, of course, get a, a good dragon in the midst of it all. Uh, that's in the, in the Apocrypha. There's a wonderful recipe for how to kill a dragon when Daniel creates a, a basically a self-exploding ball of fat for the dragon to eat. So it swallows it and and blows up, which isn't made much of apart from, I think some cryptozoologists who think it's an indication that the Babylonians may have had dinosaurs, Um, (laughs) you know, but who knows when you get back that far.
2: Yeah. Uh, And we did cover this a little bit, I think on the Christmas show, but Mm -hmm. someone forwarded me an image from the middle ages or maybe the early Renaissance. So we might as well cover it again. Of Mary Magdalene, shown as a as a very hairy woman. Oh yeah, in hair. yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: So the legend of Mary Magdalene is that after the the resurrection, um, she continues to be a, a very active member of the the early Christian community in in, in and around Jerusalem and uh, continues to preach as well. But when the first persecution of the Christians comes, which led to the killing of the Apostle James, he was the first of the apostles to lose his life as a martyr. They, uh, quite a number of the senior figures got out of there as quickly as they could to kind of spread the message. They knew that uh, Lazarus, who was in tradition the brother of Mary Magdalene, was going to be one of those who was very per- going to be really persecuted because he was sort of evidence of the, um, the miraculous power of Christ. Mm-hmm. So he, Mary Magdalene, and St. Martha made it to the uh, south of France uh, which, again, sounds crazy to us now, but it was, it was all part of the Roman Empire, you know, so it was very easy to to actually travel in those days if you had the money, and Lazarus was considered to be a wealthy man. So they go as far as the south of France, and they set up a Christian community there, Lazarus is, it being its, its first bishop. Mary of Magdala preaches um, quite a bit, but then decides to withdraw and become a kind of a hermitess in a sort of a desert, rocky region there and spends the rest of her life in prayer. The only trouble with that is that when you're away in a desert, you don't have access to supplies. So they say that her the clothes that she, that she had with her when she went into the desert eventually wore out. But in order to preserve her from cold and also to preserve her modesty, the old legend is that either her hair, the hair of her head grew so long that it covered her body, or in some translations, she grew hair all over her body. And so it becomes almost a kind of an archetypal figure of the converted wild person mm-hmm. uh, and, and that was one of the things that came up a lot in the middle ages was this idea that if, if we went out to these extreme areas we would find uh, the, the monster um, the monstrous peoples you know the, the, the dog headed peoples and the peoples with you know their faces in their stomach and the monopods and all of these kind of people but a real debate it often parallels the debate that goes on now about you know do we catechize the aliens if they turn up um, one of the debates was, could the monsters actually receive uh, baptism? Uh, so missionaries, as they went out to find these, these extraordinary people, these, these, these tribes, there was debate as to whether or not they were sufficiently human mm-hmm. to be able to receive baptism. So Mary of Magdala taking on the attributes of this uh, was a reminder to people that all peoples of all kinds and types were to be recognized as children of the kingdom in that sense.
2: So we're looking at, you know, kind of wild man archetypes mm-hmm. and so forth in the Bible. Does John the Baptist, in a sense, not that in the sense that he was a hairy wild man, but in the sense of, the, you know, this person that's between civilization and, and wild, does, does he yeah. kind of fulfill yeah. that wild man archetype? Well, John
5: is extraordinary. Gosh, where do we begin with John? I, I, I suppose, number one, he was a Nazarite himself. So we have that idea of him going into the desert, uh, being called into the desert by the Spirit, you know, until his mission was to arise he's sanctified in the Christian tradition we believe he was sanctified as in illuminated enlightened in his mother's womb through the the visitation of Mary when she was carrying Jesus Mm -hmm. they were cousins of course they were first cousins John the Baptist and and Jesus and there's actually a very famous statue uh, that was quite popular at times especially in France and it shows a young John the Baptist and a slightly younger Jesus playing leapfrog as children
0: Um,
5: uh, I'll try and find a photograph of it somewhere and send it in to you. I suppose um centering on the fact that they were they were cousins together as such. So John may have had contact with the Essenes, who were a kind of um somewhat apocalyptic Jewish community that lived in, in the desert, but but he certainly was influenced by some of the desert spirituality of the of the early jews you have that whole thing of him dressing in camel skin Mm -hmm. um, and wearing the leather belt and that's was traditionally seen as as the kind of almost the uniform of the prophet in that he's echoing elijah and so just as elijah was supposed to come back to announce the coming of the messiah john the baptist is seen as the as the person who receives the spirit of elijah uh, to do this to to announce the coming of christ Eating locusts and wild honey, we're told, but again, translation of that, um, the locusts were probably not the kind of grasshopper locusts, but a, an actual plant that was the, that was that was there. Um, but again, a, a sort of a very ascetic individual who comes in from the desert to sort of wake the people up to the coming of Christ and to prepare for that, uh, and then retires back into the desert afterwards to disappear. So yeah, you could you could certainly call him a, a liminal figure, and of course in in in, in Celtic and medieval Europe he became the figure that uh, stood between light and darkness so mm-hmm. St. John's Eve was a very very important feast of kind of the light and the darkness coming and bonfires would be lit all over all over Europe to sort of uh, purify the land and to prepare for the next season. And there was also a, a big tradition of betrothals taking place on St. John's Eve um, the couples would, would actually jump through the fire together, jump through the flames as a sign that they were kind of um, beginning life together uh, as kind of a betrothal before the marriage itself. Many of those were probably folk or uh, pagan ceremonies that were sort of slowly absorbed within the Christian tradition as well. Uh, But John sort of stands always as the, the light bringer, the illuminator. Yeah.
2: So what are, you know, laying out just very basic, what are your feelings that A, Nephilim are connected in any way to what we call Bigfoot, and B, that Bigfoot in any form appears in the Bible?
5: Well, I would say in terms of Bigfoot being connected to the Nephilim, I am happy to be proved wrong mm-hmm. always. Sure. There's no mm-hmm. problem with that at all. Yes. And, and I hope people don't think that I'm being too dogmatic here. But I think when we approach any text, if I was approaching a Buddhist text or a Hindu text or, or a text from anywhere, I have to approach that with with reverence, respect, and with all of the tools that are possible.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: And the same is true for Scripture, you know, whether you are a believing Christian or not, or a believing Jew for that matter or not. So I, I think we need to be careful of trying to, trying to find what we want to find. So I'm going to say, for now anyway, my opinion would be that the Nephilim and Bigfoot are not connected, you know. But as I say, I'm happy to be proven wrong. Right. Um, right. If you're asking about Bigfoot in the Bible itself... Um, if you really push me I could sort of say that maybe apocryphally or analogically Jacob and Esau or Isaac and Esau are um, maybe images of two or three different forms of human being that might have been around at the time the possible image of a relict hominid there somewhere but I don't think it's likely yeah and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say that there are Plenty of things in God's creation that may not necessarily ever have been written about.
2: Yeah, yeah. That, that's again. That was my w- when I frustratingly put it before. I just said not everything has to be in the Bible. Yeah. And, and but I think yeah. that's a good thing. You know that, that sure. the uh, Bible is open ended like that.
5: In a yeah. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Remember, it's it's a we used to say it's a, it's a teleological text. In other words, it's about purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. It's not a technological text, you know. It's not a school, a school book or a science book by any means. Um, and so uh, I remember somebody getting very upset because we just pointed out the fact that, you know, in the, the beautiful poem of creation in Genesis, where it talks about God creating everything in seven days, what we're actually talking about is the Hebrew understanding of a day as a unit of work. Mm. And so um, you know, it, may, it certainly wasn't seven periods of twenty-four hours by any means. And again, it's it's an um, an allegory um, and uh, and an analogical text. It's it's creation myth at its very finest. And that doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that it's it needs to be listened to in a particular way. But there will always be people who will say, "No, I want the sureness of seven periods of twenty-four hours." Right. You know. Right. And that's not to say that God, as a believer, if God wanted to do that, of course God could. But if you know the text and you know where it comes from and you know the history, I don't believe that's in that text. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I think we pretty much
5: covered it. I'm sure by now I've chased away most of the listeners. <laughs> I think um,
2: we got a little deeper than uh, than, <laughs> than Harry Man in the Bible, but it is what it is. I think it's it's a necessary conversation. We'll when we can get into this stuff. Feel
5: free, feel free to edit away. That's that's all I'd say. No problem. And I I promise that the, the next time you talk to me, I will get back to some uh, fairy stories and ghost stories.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know the, the next couple of times. I think it's going to be our Marian apparition conversation.
5: Well, that, that I I think that will probably attract more interest maybe i'd say once they hear me say no nephilim they'll be gone but um, (laughs) and as i say if this never appears don't worry about that tim but i just found myself getting more and more i suppose you know annoyed irritated by the kind of scholarship that was around the Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bigfoot equals nephilim thing and just felt that it needed to be i suppose challenged to some extent the marian apparitions one i suppose is very interesting in the sense that i think it's a real indication That the manifold nature of the other, Mm -hmm. ranging from whatever to whatever, always uses the same channels by which to communicate.
2: Brother Richard, thank you so much for coming on
5: again. And thank you for having me. Always delighted to be here. Come back soon.
2: You think giants kept puppies?
3: Yeah, why not?
2: Like Clifford? Clifford-sized puppies? (laughs) Yeah. They had their own own (laughs) giant puppies. Yeah,
3: that's something that was never addressed in the Clifford books. What? How do you clean up after a dog that's size? Yeah, (laughs) I guess that would be quite an issue.
2: Also, what if he's naughty? I mean, what are you going to do?
3: Tina would know. Tina would know. She would.
2: That's what you need 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy for. No matter what size your puppy is, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you with a relationship-based approach. They'll help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. Whatever issues you're having, whether it's issues with potty training, mouthing and biting, fear and nervousness, barking, if your puppy's chewing on furniture or shoes or other things your puppy shouldn't be chewing on, if you're having problems with crate training, hyperactivity issues, lease training, and more, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can teach you what to do and also what not to do. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Good for giant puppies. Good for regular puppies. Good for tiny puppies as well.
3: I don't think she charges by weight either. I don't Um. (laughs) think so.
2: (laughs) SitHappens.us is where you'll find 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. Look for that 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Before we get to the curiosity of the week, I want to thank the mysteriously named Scallion. Who sent us a gift card. So thank you very much.
3: This is one of my favorite onions.
2: In case there's more than one scallion out there. This scallion was from Ohio. So thank you very much, scallion. It's a wonderful help.
3: Yes, thank you.
2: So now we're going to get to the curiosity of the week. Why, this looks like a CDV, Allison. Well, it's it's CDV-sized.
3: It is. It's actually, technically, album filler.
2: Which I like. You've yeah. had some really, really cool albums. So that's things that, just oddities like and curiosities. Like if you didn't have an,
3: enough of your friends to fill up an album and you really wanted to fill it up, you could just buy some things that like appealed to you as far as like big-time celebrities of the time or interesting illustrations, or this would kind of qualify as both. This is an illustration of the famous Tom Thumb and his wife. Now, they're not giants. You
2: kind of went in the opposite direction yeah, from curiosity. <laughs>
3: I thought I'd like to represent everyone in the whole continuum.
2: Tom Thumb was famous because basically Barnum made him famous, right?
3: Yeah, he was Barnum's big first celebrity. Well, the one that everyone knows is the big first celebrity.
2: Big being the yeah,
3: I know. <laughs> didn't even trying. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: And he was friends with Barnum, right? So
3: he was. He was like a distant relation. So when he kind of his family trusted him to be kind of taken under the wing of P.T. Barnum and
2: and of all the sort of we'll call them performers. Yeah. That Barnum had. He kind of had a special relationship with Tom Thumb and kind of made sure he got treated pretty well. I
3: think. Yeah, he made it a lot better than a lot of other yeah. performers. So, so definitely a hierarchy there.
2: He's a short guy, Tom.
3: Yeah, a little guy.
2: Was that his actual wife? Did he marry? A-
3: he did. He married another little person.
2: And this is a you know, potentially odd question, but mm-hmm. this is a picture of them with their child. They didn't have a child. They didn't have a child,
3: When they got to town, a new town, Barnum would go to an orphanage and rent a baby. Wow. So they would pose for the picture. And unfortunately, what happened is his wife was a little person. She had a sister as well who was a little person. And she died giving birth. So Her sister. Her her sister sister died. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they might not have been capable of having children. Mm-hmm. But they, I always felt like it was so, I, I felt such of a, um, such heartache for her having to pose as if that was her own child. Again and again. Again and again with a new baby and smile yeah. and pretend that you had a happy family like that. and.
2: Oh, yeah, that yeah. Is, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, isn't it? Like, <laughs> so great. We're
4: offering this <laughs> heartbreaking,
3: heartbreaking image
2: of, uh, of uh,
3: people forced to be circus performers because of their height. And she actually had an interesting form of dwarfism that was a result of close intermarriage
2: oh okay i didn't know that could be one of the uh...
3: yes and she was she and her sister were entirely proportional that's why they were you know by the laws of arbitrary uh, right uh, yeah, yeah at yeah, some point somebody decided somebody decided that that was more desirable than, right. than different forms of dwarfism really at interesting
2: time. very very interesting Tom Thumb was quite the celebrity. I've seen several pictures of his wedding and... He
3: was always dressed up in little costumes. Yeah. And um, there's some really famous daguerreotypes the uh, National Portrait Gallery has somewhere. He's standing next to Barnum. He's really one of the first kind of celebrity, quote-unquote, freaks. Yeah. To have their picture taken. He was so young at the time that photography was invented that... um, he was new on the scene. You know? Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay, so this is the Curiosity of the Week, an image of Tom Thumb and his wife and not child. Yeah, and it's I hope heart that... heart
3: I know. I hope that baby ended up having a fabulous life, but I'm guessing that it was probably rented out and whoever owned the orphanage made the money off of that. Wow.
2: <laughs> if you go to the show notes under this episode, you can click on this image. It'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can buy this... As the curiosity of the week, all of the other curiosities of the week have sold. So there are no others to purchase, but there's still some photos of the week left from when we were doing photo of the week.
3: And I certainly have more. I have enough to probably get us through the next 10,000 weeks. So What photos? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) give or take.
2: So go ahead and check it out. And while you're at Etsy, make sure to check out our other offerings in our store. Our shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. Have some artwork up there. Copies of my books, my art books, Strange Familiars t-shirts, and more. Go ahead and check it out. And while you're on Etsy, make sure to check out Chad shop, Rock Rabbit Outdoors, and our friends at Karmic Garden. All right, that'll be it for this week's Strange Familiars. As we said, we got a show on Giants coming up for patrons. It's going to be huge. Ah. <sighs> Patreon.com, Strange Familiars. If you want to hear that, become a patron. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Color Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stonebreath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. If you're on Facebook, you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group where we talk about all kinds of paranormal and weirdo stuff, kind of stuff we cover on the show. We're on Instagram at strangefamiliars, one word, and you can always find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com. In 2019 the first strange realities conference took place in nashville tennessee
3: the pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event
2: now for 2021 the third annual strange realities conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event live in person in nashville and streaming online Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers
3: presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal.
2: Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Azkath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P. D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, aka okay. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Bren Collier. Tickets available on Strange Realities Conference.com
5: It's gonna be amazing.
0: book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money on your outdoor
2: project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals.
4: Save big money.